It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome back to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stumpf, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Traumatize, where we shine light on unsung heroes in the world of veterinary medicine and beyond. Today, we have the privilege of featuring Dr. Aaron Kirkpatrick, a remarkable veterinarian whose journey from Rockville, Maryland to Berry Hill Animal Hospital in Nashville is nothing short of inspiring. Dr. Kirkpatrick is a compassionate advocate for her patients, specializing in surgery, nutrition, palliative care, and client education. In this episode, we'll delve into the challenges and triumphs of her career, explore often overlooked aspect of vicarious trauma that affects those unsung heroes of the veterinary world. Stay tuned for our conversation that celebrates the extraordinary work of individuals like Dr. Erin Kirkpatrick often unseen in the ways she is supporting individuals and families through some of the most difficult losses, a true unsung hero of her community. Thanks so much for joining us today, Erin. Yes, I'm very excited to be here. So we're going to jump into some of the questions about your role and and why we consider veterinarians one of the unsung heroes um, that we're featuring this season on Traumatize. Can you share with us some insights into the most rewarding aspects of being a veterinarian and how these moments contribute to your passion for the profession? Yeah. So it probably varies by what practice you're at and what type of veterinarian you are. For me, I am at a general practice. So what people traditionally think of as a veterinarian, I see cats and dogs, a day practice. We do surgery here. We see some emergencies, but we don't have overnight or anything like that. So the best part about my job or the most rewarding part about it is that I get to have long time relationships with both the pet and the pet owner, which I think is unique for general practitioners. There's a lot of other areas of veterinary medicine where they don't get that emergency medicine and and specialists and that sort of thing. Surgeons, they don't necessarily get that long-term relationship like we do. And that is the most rewarding to me to see a pet from, from puppy to senior, to see people with, you know, the new pet that they got after they lost their last one and to really get to know people um, and what they're like and know their families. And that's definitely the most rewarding part. So this is so interesting to me. You just gave me two thoughts, Erin. One is as humans, we tend to be really interested in the bookends of life. Like when you think about kids have lots of questions about birth, they have lots of questions about death. And you just described how you get to sort of be at the continuum of the lifespan for pets and their owners on on in between both of those bookends, which tends to be the parts that we're most curious about. So it's just an interesting vantage point that you have. And you also mentioned relationship. And as I think about the work that we do around trauma-informed care, one of the key concepts in building trauma-responsive approaches is trust. 
And we know in the research about trust that one of the key pillars of being able to both create and maintain trust is relationship. And so I can imagine this situates you at a point where often pet owners really do trust your opinion. And I can only imagine that as a veterinarian, you have to solve lots of complex problems, probably oftentimes under immense stress. Um, And this probably brings both excitement and fulfillment and maybe some challenges. But I would love for you to share with our listeners kind of a typical day from your perspective and all the things that you have to navigate. Yeah, very true. Trust is a huge part of what we do. And it, you know, when we have a longtime client or someone that has that trust with us, it makes our job 100% better because we know that they believe in what we're doing. They trust we're doing what's best for their pet. We're not always necessarily being having to defend ourselves or, or second guess or something like that. So um, it definitely it makes our, our job really wonderful in those situations. A typical day for me here at work, I usually get here around eight o'clock. I have a whole, you know, I have three kids and I have my family for hours before that. So usually I get here around eight and depending on the day, it looks a little bit different. Some days I do surgery all day um, where I might be in spay and neuter procedures, dental procedures, lumpectomies or removal of growths or uh, removing foreign bodies and stuff like that from intestines or, you know, whatever an animal may have eaten that day or, or what have you. Or my other days are where I see appointments all day, which I really struggle because I love both of those things. I love surgery. I love fixing a problem and seeing it fixed right afterwards. But I really, I feel like for me, I get the most from the face-to-face interaction with people um, and talking to people and educating clients about their pets. So I generally see anywhere from 15 to 20 appointments in a day when I see appointments. Some of those are scheduled, some of those are work-ins, some are emergencies um, or what have you. So yeah, and then we usually leave around five o'clock, hopefully on time, um, and then go home to the rest of our lives. You know, it's funny, Erin, you're making it sound sort of like this, almost like, um, I can tell you enjoy it, but almost like easy breezy, like we got this, we got the strategies. And one thing I wanted to highlight, maybe for folks that are coming into this conversation, like interesting, I wouldn't think about veterinarians as a group of people that are dealing with trauma responsive care, and maybe even vicarious trauma. Lindsay, do you want to talk a little bit about why you even thought of this as a place where we are relying on unsung heroes to sort of carry us through traumatic moments? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for our listeners, uh, Aaron and I have the privilege and honor of knowing each other from a past life um, when we were younger. And I've seen Aaron post uh, about sort of the impact that being a veterinarian can have on an individual's personal mental health and life and um, the weight of how heavy that can be to have to carry. And the other piece is, is when I had a senior dog who was getting acupuncture, I was having just sort of a random conversation with the veterinarian that was doing it and talking about our work and how I can imagine that's really hard. And she shared with me that veterinarians have an incredibly high rate and risk of suicide because of the sort of complexities and, and holding of trauma, both in terms of working with um, animals, right? And then also with the people who love them and are impacted by that. And it was that sort of click moment for me of realizing like, wow, this isn't a place where I necessarily would have made the connection that there is a lot of vicarious trauma that you're holding, whether that be 
seeing an emergency from a pet who maybe was a part of a domestic violence situation. I can think of a client we had recently where that happened. That the we and we know that animals are often the first target uh, in domestic violence, even to right like someone you've loved, a pet you've loved for fifteen years who's older and moving on to that sort of final stage of life. And so I think you really see the sort of gamut of trauma that folks could walk in with. And so many people believe, and I do too, that pets, right, are part of the family. And they bring a lot of like, there's all this research about how amazing they are and how how much they add to our lives. And so um, this was this was sort of the impetus behind us realizing like, wow, it'd be really interesting to talk to you about how this impacts you and what you and your team do to sort of combat the spaces and places that you're seeing trauma. Yeah, I think we definitely have days where it is relatively easy breezy and everything is fine and we don't have as many sad moments or as many difficult things to work through. And then we definitely have days where it feels like that's all we've done that day, which can be a lot. But, you know, I think for my team, what we typically try to focus on is whether the people are emotional or becoming frustrated or they're having a really hard time. As long as we focus on what's best for the pet, then we're always doing the right thing. So if we're having a hard time communicating with them, instead of becoming frustrated or getting worked up about it, we just have to find a different way to get them to see what might be right for their pet, whether that is pursuing a diagnostic or, you know, it's time to put their pet down and they really can't get there and they really can't wrap their head around it. It's our job to get them to understand what's best and to educate them the best way that we can. And we kind of have to put everything else aside to get them to that place appropriately. So I think for me, as long as I focus always on, you know, the pet's care and what is best for the pet, and that's hard to say because a lot of what we do is so much about the people are with the pet, that when it comes down to those challenging times, that's all I can focus on to kind of get through some of the stuff. And that usually, usually gives us the best outcome. Yeah, I love that you're talking about options. We know when we think about trauma-informed care, choice for individuals that are faced um, with really hard experiences, some that are traumatic, right? Often when we think about like the loss of a pet, it's a family member. It is a it is threatening, dangerous, out of control, and often can be a traumatic experience. And this idea of options, choices, and centering what is best for the pet is really consistent with how we think about trauma-informed care with people, right? And so I love that you're kind of thinking about it from that, from that perspective. And, you know, reflecting on your dedication, the compassionate approach that you have both with the pets and and with the pet owners, I'm really curious about your educational journey. Lindsay and I do a lot of education around trauma-informed care. Here comes my cat as we're talking about pets. And we do a lot of this education really believing that trauma education changes people. It changes the way we practice in our sectors. It changes us as leaders. I'm really curious, kind of what was your introduction into trauma-informed care? Did you learn about it when you were becoming a veterinarian? If not, how did you kind of integrate, learn about, and then integrate these principles into your practice? In school, I don't, you know, I went to, I was in vet school, I graduated 10 years ago. So at that time, I don't really remember a whole lot of education about, you know, anything in, in that realm. We definitely, you know, our fourth year, our clinical year, we did practice in a hospital under supervising veterinarians. So we were responsible for a lot of the communication 
uh, with owners, with pet owners, but I, I don't know that there was really a lot of teaching about how to have these difficult conversations or how to, how to work through those at all. I think I had a really excellent mentor when I started my job here. I kind of um, had my first job out of vet school, which maybe was not the right one for me in more of a rural setting. I didn't really have a great mentor there, which is kind of, you know, thrown to the wolves. And then when I came to this practice, I had excellent mentors. Every veterinarian that worked here helped me through those conversations. And I think for, for me, it's been mostly time and experience. And because I do a lot of pain management and end of life care, and that's just like a passion of mine and a focus of mine that I'm very comfortable in those conversations. And I really feel like I'm advocating for the pet in those times that I've gotten, gotten good at all of that stuff. Maybe, you know, it's not for everyone. And, and I think in another life, I would probably be like a hospice veterinarian, which seems like a strange job if you love animals a whole lot. But, you know, that's a really important part of, of their life, how they go. And it's important to the owner, too. So I think for me, it's just really been time. And more of the vet schools now are implementing courses on communication and teaching the students how to have these conversations before they graduate. Well, that's great to hear because I can imagine yeah. that learning on the job is both helpful, but also got to be challenging in those moments. I know at least I've felt that way in the times and places where I've been like, "Ooh, buddy, I do not know what to say here. But you, you mentioned that end of life care is one of your sort of like passions and ensuring that pets are really well taken care of in that moment. How do you and your team provide support and guidance to pet owners who are faced, you know, with that difficult decision to euthanize their pet? Yeah, you know, it presents different ways. So there are some people who come in and it's an easy conversation. They have a decision made and we're here to just support the process. In those situations, we try to make it as seamless as possible for them. You know, our hospital is, is even built in such a way so that it is as easy as possible for them. You know, we have a comfort room that we use for multiple things. I use it just to talk to people when we don't want to have a conversation in the lobby in front of anyone. I use it for acupuncture. But we also use it for euthanasia because it's kind of a private room. It's at the front of our hospital that's a little quieter. And it also has a door that exits the hospital where you don't have to walk through the lobby. So if you're ready to leave and, and you don't want to have to walk through, you know, crying through a lobby full of people, you have a way to exit, you know, privately. So we do that. We also try to take care of everything we can beforehand, knowing what they want to do with the pet's remains, if they want to be present for this process or not present for this process, we try to go through exactly what the process is beforehand, because a lot of people don't, you know, know what that is and kind of set up all these expectations way ahead of time so that at the time we're not having to do that. People can just spend that time with their pet and they're not having to hear a whole bunch of, you know, other stuff that is probably difficult to listen to anyway, when you're in that emotional state. And then we Always send everybody a card afterwards that our whole team signs. We sometimes send flowers depending on if it's been a really long time pet or client. And I also make a donation to the vet school that I went to, Oklahoma State. Um, they have a, a donation fund that you can make in the name of a pet. So I send that for every pet that we lose as a patient. Bridget and I are very, very easily emotional. So yeah, for the listeners, Bridget and I are uh, tearing up, which just because... And I know that Bridget has another question for Aaron, but I think you do so many things. I know when we first started talking about having you on the podcast, you were like, I don't really know if like I do these trauma-informed care things. Everything that you just said about the way in which you 
are setting expectations, even the like physical layout of a room. When we look to the national research around like, how do you create a trauma informed space and care? Like you do all of those. And so I think it's just like, it's incredible to know that the folks that you're intersecting with, they're showing up in a space where like you really are taking care of them and their pet in such a way that's like so thoughtful to what they need in that moment. I was having the same emotional reaction because I was quite moved by the intentionality behind what you were describing. It is so consistent with how we think about trauma-informed care for survivors of any type of trauma. And trauma doesn't always have to be kind of what often people think about kind of these big T traumas, abuse, natural disaster. It can be some of the um, kind of typical moments in our life like the loss of a pet, right? That is traumatic. And when we help people know what is going to come first, next and last, when we give them the time to process that outside of the actual moment where it's happening so that they can just be present in that moment. Um, When we give them the psychological safety of privacy, like just this room that you described, I was like the ability to just be able to show up vulnerable for however emotionally you're experiencing that loss and be exactly that without the concern of sitting in a busy waiting room. Like that is so humanizing. And the fact that you're doing that while centering like the comfort of the pet, right? It's just really beautiful. I was I was deeply touched, Erin, by how you were describing that process. And, you know, I was also thinking one of the things we know can be a protective factor in responding to things like vicarious trauma, this concept of how are you after holding all that space with a pet owner, how are you impacted? You talked about purposefulness and making a donation and the ways that you find meaning in these experiences. But we know that peer support, being in community with others that know that feeling really is a protective factor in doing this kind of work where we're impacted. And it was not lost on me that you described the place you're at now having like really wonderful mentors. We know that that mentor support, the sort of peer support aspect is really critical in keeping people feeling understood in this work. And so that was, I was happy to hear that that's been a part of your journey But ultimately, we know that this work does impact veterinarians, and you're often holding space in some of the most traumatic moments with families. Um, What do you do to both preventatively think about protective factors in your own life, but also to kind of move through the moments where you are being impacted by what you're holding for families? Yeah, it's hard because so many veterinarians and veterinary support staff, vet techs and vet assistants, and even our receptionists the people that really stay in this profession are primarily empaths. You know, they care so much. These things don't happen to them lightly. We don't all just move on with our day and sometimes can leave us momentarily because we have to see the rest of our appointments or we have to go do something else. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're all texting each other about losing that one patient we all love or or the difficult thing that happened that day, even if it's not necessarily euthanasia, but something else. We all communicate with each other pretty openly about that stuff. And we're all pretty in tune and open about who needs a little bit more time, who needs a little bit more space. I like to do a morning huddle in the morning, even though sometimes my team thinks that's pretty silly or annoying. I'm definitely a morning person. So I come in, you know, just guns blazing, ready for the day. And everybody is not that way. But I like to do a morning huddle where I can check in with everyone and kind of see like, where are you today? Mentally, emotionally, physically? Do you have a lot of energy? Do you have space for this stuff today? Or do you not? And then we can kind of all shoulder for each other because there's days I come in and I'm like, I don't have a lot. I don't have everything to give today. I'm not 100%. 
And, you know, I have great associate veterinarians and I have great technicians and support staff that kind of help us all through all of it. So I think it's just really good open communication with one another. For me personally, I feel time outside and exercise is really important to me to keep my headspace clear. I think I would probably be a pretty terrible human if I didn't spend time outside and also exercise. And I encourage my staff to do that. You know, sometimes we'll just need to go take a walk outside or walk down the street or go get a coffee or or something um, if we're just having a time. So really, it's just communication between our staff, I think, that, that does the best. You probably know this, but there is a lot of research about time outside and the impact on mental health. And Bridget and I always have this debate because I live near the water and she lives in the forest about um, which one is is more peaceful. And so we'll ask you, do you have a preference between water or forest? I would have to say forest. I know. <laughs> Probably not the popular choice, but I'm a camper. So, I mean, I love being yeah out in the woods. Yeah, it's beautiful. I like both. I just happen to live near water, so <laughs> it works out well. But, you know, the, yeah. what you're describing, what you're building for your team, right, is a term that we often talk about of, around um, vicarious resiliency. When you're working with folks or animals that have experienced trauma, one of the ways that we sort of continue to be able to do this work is this peer support, being able to really create a sense of purpose making and out of all of this and and being able to support your staff, which it sounds like the folks you're working with are super lucky that you recognize and talk about how this might impact them. I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about how do you all navigate interacting with pet owners who are dealing with stress, grief, or loss in terms of when that sort of gets directed at you, um, when those feelings get directed at you, how do you handle that? That's an interesting question because we definitely come across that uh, frequently. And, and sometimes it is easy to see that this person is hurting or scared or unsure and stressed by the situation that's in front of them. And that I think is a little bit easier for us to navigate because we can clearly see, you know, they're worried about their pet. We're telling them things that are scary and they're unsure about. And as long as we remain calm, for the most part, we can really get our point across and educate them. And again, always keeping patient care number one and realizing that we're trying to help them so we can help the pet. And no matter how frustrated or upset they get, that's our priority. There's oftentimes where that's not as clear that they are stressed by maybe what's going on with their pet because maybe we don't know what else is going on. Maybe they have major financial constraints and us telling them, you know, we want to do X, Y, Z is really just put them overboard and something they're already, you know, stressed or worked up about. And it manifests that way. So I kind of always just tell my staff to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I sometimes play too much devil's advocate, but, you know, I think someone kind of always has to. And then sometimes we have to, you know, change out staff if it's just not, a you know, the right personality for this person, the right form of communication for this person. Sometimes we switch doctors or technicians or what have you, or we communicate in a, di- in a different way. Some people, some clients will do really well if you just ask them, what are you upset about right now? what is upsetting you that I'm telling you and asking them honestly what they're getting so worked up about. Is it because you're worried about your pet? Is it because you 
don't trust the recommendations that we're making or, or you don't believe in the severity or, or whatnot, or you're frustrated we're not doing enough or we're not taking you seriously. Sometimes just asking them and acknowledging that they are feeling a certain way is, I think, really helpful to redirect the conversation. But again, sometimes we do have to just switch people or teams and that is enough to kind of you know get us moving forward in a treatment plan. You're exactly right, Erin. There is like such a beautiful power when people are struggling with grief, loss, stress in general, right? Just stress on its own. The opportunity to ask them about it is such a beautiful way to validate. Like this is a fair emotional reaction that you are having to the situation and like asking acknowledges that we see it, that they're allowed to have those feelings. I also think it's interesting. We've talked about Brene Brown's research a little bit around emotion, and she really beautifully describes how how blame is really a natural response to displacing discomfort, right? And I can imagine the reason you all experience that frequently is that when you're in a moment of loss of a a loved family member like a pet, you want to put that blame somewhere. And and so I, I can understand why maybe this comes up in the context that you operate so frequently. And I'm very curious... When you think about aspects of your role um, that the public may not be aware of, you know, that maybe contribute to vicarious trauma that you experience, what would you want sort of a, a typical pet owner coming into your office that's maybe not aware of what you all are, are really doing and how thoughtful you're being day to day? What would you want them to understand about your role that maybe they just naturally don't? I think a lot of our clients understand to some extent the amount of stress we go through and how our day can change you know, moment to moment. And the greater majority of them really understand that if we are running late getting into your appointment, it is not because we're not doing some, you know, anything. It's usually because an emergency has happened or something occurred that was not supposed to happen or was, you know, not as predicted. And I usually find if I just explain that to them, hey, we had an emergency come in, people are fine. But there are a lot of times where people don't understand that, you know, especially depending on the practice, some people don't understand that we see emergencies here. So they don't really understand why we might be delayed or we might not have the ability to do everything that they need done that day because we can't do it in a 30-minute window that they're scheduled in. So, I mean, I, I think if people could understand that, you know, we're always doing our best. And I can't speak for every veterinarian, but I would say the greater majority of them, and I I know hundreds of veterinarians, they're, they're all in it for the right reason. I don't personally know one bad veterinarian that is not doing it for the right reason. I don't think it's really a job that most people pursue if they have ulterior motives or something. Um, so, we're all here for the right reason. And it's because we love animals and we love medicine. And a lot of times it's also because we like working with people. So to keep that in mind, I know there can be a lot of skepticism, especially if you're getting to know a practice or a practitioner or something like that. You're always looking out for your pet first as a pet owner. And there can be some distrust or, you know, what have you. I think the number one thing people should do is find a veterinarian that they trust. And that's going to be better for them. It's going to be better for the vet. It's, it's just really difficult to practice with people that don't trust you, that, you know, you really should just find someone that you you believe and that you can trust wholeheartedly. And that can be hard, but once you find them, it's, it's really wonderful. I think that's about it. And the only other thing is that, you know, we're all also humans and sometimes we have a lot happen outside of here. So it can be hard to 
keep everyone scheduled for the days they're supposed to be scheduled. And sometimes things have to be rescheduled. And I know that that can be challenging for pet owners, but it's challenging for us, us too. That's really all it. One question we didn't ask you earlier that I'm curious about is like, what was the motivation or has been the motivation for you, you know, over the time sort of posting about or on your social media, the times I've seen you talk about the impact, like what was the reasoning behind that for you about sharing how hard this could be? Yeah, I think I found a good community on Facebook and Instagram and just social media of other veterinarians, other mom veterinarians, other mom practice owner veterinarians, other chicken owner veterinarians. Like there's all kinds of different uh, ways we connect with each other. And we all kind of speak to each other in that way. And it's nice to see someone else post something that you felt or you went through. So I think that's probably primarily why I did as well as for, you know, my friends on there who aren't veterinarians, who maybe don't know what we go through or how much we think about it when we're not there, how much we care or that sort of thing. I think it can be eye-opening for them to, to understand, you know, the, not the behind the scenes, but maybe a little bit more about, you know, what we go through every day. It's really my digital friends or whoever they are, like we have such a great network We've helped each other in so many different situations and I've learned so much from from so many of them. Yeah, it's really interesting, Erin, because um, part of our belief just in how we approach our work, this podcast is that being trauma-informed is a part of really connecting us all as humans because of how common the experience is and the fact that you've been motivated to talk about how your work impacts you, how it impacts other veterinarians. It is just really beautiful that I think you have kind of that same North Star of like, just wanting people to feel more connected and to feel more community. And ultimately, hope that hopefully makes your job easier and also makes um, pet owners experience a little bit easier as they can get greater context into what it means to do this work. So I'm just deeply appreciative of like the insightfulness and compassion that you infuse into thinking about um, your work as a pet owner myself, but also just as someone throughout my life who's had to, you know, intersect um, with folks in your role and just knowing that you're really leading the profession into thinking about this in a, I think, a really humanizing, humanizing and petonizing. I don't know if that's a word, but um, all of that is to say, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. And we're really thankful for the work that you do in your time and energy and speaking with us about how you do it so thoughtfully. And for our listeners, we're grateful that you continue to join us for season two of Traumatize. As you continue to listen, you can always subscribe, rate and review the Traumatize podcast wherever you listen. And of course, thank you for being on this journey with us. And we hope that you will continue to join us for more Untangling. Be well. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.